Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, cardio nerds. It's Dan Ambinder here, and we are ecstatic about bringing this sixth prevention episode to your feeds. Previously on the Cardio Nerds Prevention Series, we've covered a great case discussion in true Cardio Nerd style, had an inspiring patient perspective by Kanaka Min, heard the ABCs of cardiovascular prevention with Dr. Roger Blumenthal, explored women's cardiovascular prevention with Dr. Leslie Cho, and got down and greasy with lipids with Drs. Anne-Marie Navarre and Nishant Shah. In this episode, we get crunchy and calcified with Dr. Michael Blaha, prevention aficionado and coronary artery calcium expert. We talk all things related to coronary artery calcium studies, when to get it, when not to get it, how to get it, and how frequently to get it, and how it can help you and your patient travel through and navigate their journeys through cardiovascular prevention. Stay tuned. Again, we are truly honored to be producing this series in collaboration with the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. See the link on the episode description to get on their website It's an incredible resource for learning, networking, and promoting the ideals of cardiovascular prevention. And folks, just remember, we are an independent educational platform brought to you by cardio nerds who just love cardiology and teaching. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The goal is simply to enjoy learning about cardiology directly from expert cardio nerds. I am so excited to introduce Dr. Michael Blaha today. Dr. Blaha is a professor of medicine and presently serves as the director of clinical research for the Johns Hopkins Chikoroni Center for Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease. Dr. Blaha completed both his MD and MPH at Vanderbilt University. He then completed his internal medicine residency in the Osler Medical House Staff Training Program at Johns Hopkins, where he then completed fellowship training. He's an associate editor for the Journal of Cardiovascular Computed Tomography, associate editor for the Diabetes and Cardiometabolic Clinical Community on ACC.org, and is a standing member of the Endocrinologic and Metabolic Drug Advisory Committee for the FDA. He's a principal investigator for the Coronary Artery Calcium Consortium, co-chair of the Cross Cohort Collaboration, and a principal investigator for the American Heart Association Tobacco Regulation and Addiction Center. On top of all his hats that Dr. Blaha wears in both clinical and the research setting, Dr. Blaha is also an incredible example of how to maintain work-life balance. I mean, honestly, in the process of scheduling this interview, he emphasized the importance of maintaining a free schedule during dinner time and weekends, a lesson that I am definitely taking very, very seriously. This is something that I really strive to emulate myself as a father and just really excited to have you here, Dr. Blaha. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. Always important to stress the life balance. We all have busy lives, busy family lives, especially during this pandemic. Good to remind ourselves that we have to balance work and life. We're also so grateful to be joined by another Hopkins Cardiology Star Fellow, Dr. Gabriel Shia. Gabe is currently a second-year fellow. He earned both his medical degree and Master of Public Health at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. 
He went on to complete his residency in internal medicine at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center. He has a research interest in preventive cardiology, and he has been working with Dr. Blaha for years. Gabe, this is a real treat. And actually, I will thank you because when Cardi Nerds was starting, you listened to the show, you gave us a lot of feedback and really, really helped shape the way we are today. So thank you so much for being on the show. A pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thank you all for having me on. And to the whole team, I've been very impressed with the progress that Cardio Nerds has made over the last few months. It's great to be here today with Dr. Blaha, who's been an instrumental mentor for me over the years and has driven me to become the cardio nerd that I am today. So I am looking very much forward to our discussion. Dr. Blaha, We'd like to kick off our discussion with an overview of coronary CT and coronary artery calcium. Can you give us a brief description of how coronary CT works and how a calcium score is generated? Sure, absolutely. It's good to remind everyone what exactly it is that we're talking about with a calcium score, because I think you guys have probably seen in the house staff, sometimes you can see confusion between a calcium score and a coronary CT angiogram. Of course, the calcium score comes from a cardiac-gated, non-contrast CT scan of the heart. So it's cardiac-gated, still gated to the cardiac cycle. There's electrodes on the chest, which help us frame the image acquisition with the heartbeat. But there's no injection of contrast, so you can't see the arteries or the chambers like you would see on a CT angiogram. Therefore, those things that are really bright and highly attenuate x-rays are things like bone and calcium. So what this test is trying to do is to look for calcium within the coronary arteries, because we know dating back to the 90s, that autopsy studies and histology studies and early imaging studies have shown that calcium within the coronary arteries is nearly half a mnemonic for coronary atherosclerosis. And the amount of coronary calcium you have is nearly directly linked with the total burden of coronary plaque. So what we're doing on one of these cardiac-gated, non-contrast CT scans of the heart is looking for calcium within the coronary arteries as a sign of plaque burden. Now, you can do these tests on any modern multi-detector CT scanner that has gating capabilities. That's virtually all CT scanners anywhere, outpatient, inpatient, private practice, and academics, which is a great strength of this tool. You always acquire the images in the same way, the same size thickness, the same energy photon, as opposed to other CTs where we might vary the technique. You always reconstruct them in the same way as well. So if you get the scan done here or in another institution or around the world, it all should come out the same. It's a very easy study to interpret. And in about a couple minutes, then you can identify the calcium within someone's coronary arteries and get a sense of, in this case, their risk. So, So that's the way a calcium score is generated. And to be distinguished, of course, from a CT angiogram where you inject contrast and you're really looking for, let's say, stenosis within the coronary arteries or maybe structural heart disease. Here, we're specifically looking for that calcium, which is that sign of atherosclerosis. And I should mention that this is a low radiation test. It can be done for about one millisievert of radiation, which is about like a bilateral mammogram. Thanks, Dr. Vlaha. That was a really great overview. The last several decades have brought about a remarkable evolution in our understanding of coronary artery calcium and coronary artery calcium progression. We had this debate yesterday, Dr. Blaha. Do you call it CAC or do you say CAC? You know, it's a good question. I think maybe for the purposes of this recording, we'll just say coronary artery calcium. 
I might spit out a cack here or there. We certainly say it. It sounds better to spit, you know, to say it out. Okay. It's a mouthful otherwise. So yesterday we were just saying cack, but then we acknowledged that it was like a funny sounding word. Okay. From an epidemiologic standpoint, how does coronary artery calcium defer across populations? Are there certain populations, be it sex or race, that have higher calcium burden compared to others? Well, that's a great question. And it turns out that coronary calcium presence and burden pretty much directly correlates with what is known from the atherosclerosis literature over the decades about different populations and what we know from, let's say, in the cath lab in terms of burden of disease, because itself calcium in the coronaries is a measure of burden of disease. So it won't surprise you to hear that males tend to get calcium eight to 10 years before women, that Caucasians and South Asians tend to have a little bit higher calcium than other ethnicities, which tracks the epidemiology that Americans tend to have a little bit higher calcium than in countries with less coronary artery disease. So that's why calcium scoring has gained a lot of attraction, both in the clinical setting as well as in the research setting, where now it's used pretty much as a measure of subclinical disease in a lot of studies that can't measure clinical outcomes. It's considered a very good measure of the total burden of disease. Now, there is a, some discussion about do some populations calcify their pack less than others so that there might be a disconnect between calcium and the total amount of plaque. And it turns out to true to only a mild degree. For example, African-Americans seem to calcify their atherosclerosis by volume a little less than other race ethnicities, but there's still a great correlation between calcium in the coronary and the total atherosclerosis a burden, even in African-Americans. So I think generally we should think of this test as tracking what we know about atherosclerosis very well across populations, across parts of the world. We know that very interesting studies in Hunter and gatherer populations from South America, for example, have very little coronary calcium, showing how important lifestyle is that people who emigrate across the, the world and take up more Western lifestyles have more calcium. So it all tracks with what we understand about the disease, even environmental exposures like environmental pollution are linked to coronary calcium. So it's taught us a lot about bringing what we know about atherosclerosis over the decades into the imaging era and as a tool to quickly phenotype patients and populations in terms of their plaque burden. Thanks, Dr. Blah. It's really neat that calcium scoring actually does so much wonders in terms of personalizing risk, but on the other hand, actually identifies epidemiological trends that you kind of talk about. So that's very fascinating about this particular test, whereas pooled cohort equations may not necessarily do the same thing. But Dr. Blah, we'd love to get some of your input on some cases from our Cardio Nerds Prevention Clinic. Our first case is Mr. Bob McDonald who is a 55-year-old African-American male, a non-diabetic and non-smoker who tries to maintain a good diet and exercise. Unfortunately, he was dealt a hard card of genes as his father died at the age of 45 from an MI. His blood pressure today in clinic is 139 over 85 millimeters of mercury. Total cholesterol is 130 milligrams per deciliter, HDL 60, calculated LDL is 90, and his 10-year ASCVD risk by pooled cohort equation is 13.4%. He recently saw something on TV about coronary artery calcium scores and really wants to know what's this all about. So would you recommend coronary artery calcium testing for Mr. McDonald? And in general, which patients would you consider coronary artery calcium testing? It's a great, Dan. Great case. Great question. Let me go back to something you said before, which I think you hit on something important. And you said that coronary calcium personalizes risk. And I think that's really an important part of the discussion here. When you look at the pooled cohort equation for any risk score, for example, 
Of course, it's a mathematical expression of how risk factors relate to risk in a population. It's hard to always translate those models to individuals, right? Because a, in this case, you mentioned a 13.4% risk in this individual. But of course, the patient wants to know, am I in the 13% or am I in the 87% who aren't going to have an event in the next 10 years? And of course, the full court equations can't say that. It just says that people with your blood pressure, your cholesterol, and your background have risk about this amount. So we like to make a little distinction here. The food cohort equations is a risk score. It's a tool for predicting risk. But the calcium score is a little bit different. We might call it a disease score. Instead of giving you your risk, it actually measures a burden of subclinical disease, the disease that we think precedes almost all atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease events, which is subclinical atherosclerosis. So here we think a disease score could be useful because we could tell that patient, your arteries in the vascular bed of interest have this burden of disease this is likely the same disease that preceded your father's early heart attack. And therefore, we think you are at risk. So that, that's the philosophy behind potentially using it in a patient like this. And in this patient, likely if he's asking about a calcium score, he's worried about his risk. He's expressing to me that he's worried about his risk. And that's a great thing because he has several risk factors. And probably he's asking about that because he's uncertain about whether he should be really aggressive with prevention or if he doesn't need to be as aggressive. And that's really where we're talking about the calcium score being useful. If this patient came to me and said, I have a family history and I don't care what my cholesterol is. I don't really care what my blood pressure is. I want to be in a maximum intensity statin and cholesterol lowering program. I would say you might not need a calcium score. Let's go ahead. If you came to me and said, I don't care what my risk factors are. I'm fine. I'm not going to take any medicines. The calcium score might not be for him either. But if he comes and says, you know, I live a good lifestyle but my father had a heart attack at an early age. I want to know if I'm afflicted by the same thing and I will really change my lifestyle and I'll take new medicines if I'm afflicted. And if I'm not, you know, maybe I might live a little bit differently. Maybe I'll take less medicine. So that would be the expression of uncertainty of risk. And that's where the calcium score can be helpful. And of course, in new guidelines, ACCHA guidelines, as well as European guidelines and other subspecialty organizations like the National Lipid Association, upcoming guidelines, upcoming guidance from the Endocrine Society, as well as the Society of Cardiovascular CT, support calcium scoring in the so-called borderline intermediate risk patients, those patients in the 5 to 20% pooled cord equation zone who are uncertain about the next steps. So yeah, so this patient comes to me, I guess, asks if he can get a calcium score done. Presumably, he's not taking an aspirin or a statin yet. Presumably, he has some room to improve on his lifestyle. He's worried about things. So I would talk to him about his risk. I'd probably tell him his pooled cord equations risk was 13%, as you mentioned. If he said, well, gosh, that's so high, I want to take all the medicines, then maybe we don't need a calcium score. But chances are he would say, well, what does that mean? What does a 13% chance risk mean? And does that mean there's an 87% chance I'm fine? And then I'd talk about a calcium score. A calcium score would be a way to personalize that risk estimate and figure out if you have a subclinical form of the disease that we think leads to atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease events. And I'd probably make reference to his father who died of a heart attack at a young age saying that we try to identify early in your life that same risk that your father had. So yes, I would consider a calcium score here, right? His LDL is only 90. It's not so high. The blood pressure is sort of borderline. It's in the stage one zone, hypertension. So there's a lot of things that we could do differently. I talked about diet and exercise too. And I'd say, if I find out that your calcium score is very high, would you change your lifestyle? And he said, oh yeah, if it's high, I'm going to get back on the exercise bike or I'm going to eat better. Then that could be another benefit. So I consider a calcium score. And here I'd be looking for 
hopefully a score of zero in this gentleman. Hopefully he's avoided the genetic risk of his father and I can reassure him. I'd also be looking to see if he has a very high score, in which case I'd be very aggressive with him in terms of preventing events. So that, that's where this fits in. And I think if we could come to some understanding about what score the test means, what a, what a score means, and he's on board with it, I would order one. That's really helpful to think about. I really like the way you framed it in like, is this going to change my management? I kind of have a follow-up question about how to order one. And I've, on the wards, it's been thrown around that you could quote unquote add a coronary calcium score on to a prior CT chest non-con for some other reason. And I was kind of wondering what your thoughts are on that and if it's actually the same quality of test. So this is a great question, and it gets to a lot of the misunderstandings about calcium scoring that I see kind of amongst health staff as they're learning, for example. Remember, the calcium score comes from, by definition, from a non-contrast cardiac-gated study with a narrow field of view reconstruction just of the heart. So if you're looking at a chest-to-chest reconstruction, skin-to-skin, what we call reconstruction of a entire chest, and it's a non-gated study, for example, let's say for a pneumonia, you can't technically do a calcium score from that CT. It has to be a dedicated calcium score. So now you can't add on a calcium score from a prior non-gated image or even an image that wasn't reconstructed with a narrow field of view around the heart that was reconstructed to look at the lungs, for example. You can't add it on, nor can you do a calcium score from a CT angiogram, at least that acquisition after you inject contrast, because now the contrast gets in the way of the calcium. So it is a specific test that you order separate from, let's say, a lung cancer screening CT a CT scan in an oncology patient that you're following something, or a CT angiogram. However, and maybe probably we'll come back to this later in the discussion, it is really important to realize, though, that you can open up any chest CT, non-gated or otherwise, in the medical record and look yourself for calcium. And even though you can't do a formal calcium score, you can interpret whether there's a lot of calcium or none in the coronaries and get a quick assessment of risk on any patient who has a chest CT in the medical record. A lot of people are working on things like artificial intelligence to scan the medical record for prior chest CTs and automated read of these for calcium, or at least now there's a class one recommendation for radiologists to at least give a qualitative interpretation of calcium on all chest CTs. But technically, a, a calcium score is a specific test. You order it like for us in EPIC in the usual way, and the patient can get it done at you know the outpatient center, the inpatient center commercial radiology center in town and get the same test. It's really the same where we might think that a test is done better at academic center in certain cases and not in the community. This test would be done the same anywhere. This is one of the nice things about this test. And and then that's the only way you can get a quantitative calcium score. Otherwise, you can make a qualitative assessment of the calcium. And I encourage everyone to do that on their chest CT. But a calcium score is a specific test that can't be added on or combined with let's say, a a contrasted CT study. I have another follow-up question, Dr. Blaha, sort of going back to our first case example and talking about understanding an individual's risk and potential heritability and family history. When it comes to coronary artery calcium, do we have information on what the link might be in terms of family history? Do we have epidemiologic data to suggest that an individual with a strong family history of coronary artery disease might still have uh, a calcium score of zero? And are they at higher likelihood for higher calcium score based on that genetic risk? Yeah, good question. So we've done a lot of work in this area, given the confluence of importance of early risk detection in these people with family histories. So lots of work on this was done from the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis by people like Akuram Nasser and Aaron Mikos a long time ago. 
Roger Blumenthal and others. So we know a lot about the link between calcium scoring and family history. And I'll just say right off the bat, this is a great use of the test in people with a family history, particularly if it's sort of unclear if the family history was related to a father who smoked or is in a, you know, a different risk group for a variety of other reasons. And I'll say that the SCCT also endorses calcium scoring in low-risk patients that have a strong family history. And I'm a supporter of this. I think ACC AHA guidelines are a little more vague on this topic, but I do scan lower-risk patients with strong family histories to try to get at that risk earlier. So it's a great use of the test. So to answer your question, we do know that people with a family history have slightly higher calcium scores than people who don't have a family history, which is consistent with it being one of many risk factors for coronary atherosclerosis, but you know, just one that can be hopefully mitigated. Now, we know that once you take people who have a family history and do calcium scoring, you find very heterogeneous scores. You can find a lot of zeros and people who seem like they have a strong family history and a lot of high scores, of course. So what I'll say is the calcium score is a little bit higher in people with a family history than people who don't have a family history. However, once you do a calcium score in someone with a family history, it is just as predictive in people who have a family history as in those who don't have a family history. So the calcium score is clearly additive on top of family history. It's a great tool in those with family history. You'll find heterogeneous risk in these populations, as you know, clinically, very useful in this setting. And, and I could point the listeners to several important papers in this area. Maybe the most recent one was, I think, in 2017, the journal Circulation Imaging. It was from Mesa. I think the first author was J.D. Patel. A great paper in Bill McAvoy was a part of this, this study looking at how the calcium score performs in people with and without a family history. I think it's the go-to reference in support of the value in those people with a family history. That's great. Thanks. Okay, Gabe, sorry for that tangent. You're up. Uh, it seems as though the distinguishing feature of coronary artery calcium scoring is that we're actually imaging evidence of disease as opposed to looking at risk score based on demographic data and blood pressure, lipids, et cetera. There are also other tests that are out there that could potentially identify atherosclerosis more directly, such as carotid intimal testing and ankle brachial index. And so I was curious, how does coronary artery calcium testing compare to those types of tests? Great question, Gabe. And this is a, another area where I'll point to the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, which was an NHLBI-funded prospective cohort study that started in the year 2000 with its primary goal being the study of subclinical cardiovascular disease and future outcomes. So this study was designed to answer these questions, which were unclear two decades ago. So the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis included carotid ultrasounds, cardiac MRIs, ABI tests, measures of vascular stiffness, and other things that kind of really aren't caught on clinically. One of the main findings of MESA was that by far amongst these tests, the calcium score is by far the best for predicting risk. It's probably because it's the most sensitive and also the most specific for atherosclerosis. So yeah, it, clearly the calcium score outperforms, for example, carotid testing or the ABI. You know, the ABI is it's not abnormal in many patients. It's not a very sensitive tool for early disease. It tends to pick up disease later. The carotid test can be useful in some patients. It, it's not as predictive of coronary disease, clearly, it's maybe equivalent in stroke prediction is the calcium score, but it does not do as good, maybe not surprisingly, for the coronaries because it's not a coronary test. And it's harder to quantify a carotid test, much more sonographer variability with how the carotid is imaged that's not in a systematic fashion like the calcium score. So the calcium score 
is the best test of those. And, and that's reflected in the new guidelines where we were a little frustrated in 2013 because they kind of give you a list of tests that you could consider in your risk prediction workup. But now the 2018-19 guidelines come down clear with statements saying that the calcium score is the single best test to improve risk prediction on top of the pooled cohort equations, which I think is welcome and helps clear up confusion amongst providers who might be historically ordering a variety of different tests. Now it points straight to the calcium score. So does the European guidelines and other guidelines now, because there is that clear advantage. And actually there's a class three recommendation for carotid intimal media thickness testing, which is don't do it because it's an inferior test, hard to reproduce compared to these other tests. Now you, you could say, well, why don't we just do a coronary CT angiogram on all these patients? Because the calcium score just is looking for the calcified component of the plaque, kind of uh, making an inference about your total plaque burden. Why don't we just look and a coronary CT angiogram. And the coronary CT angiogram, of course, predicts risk extremely well too. But in asymptomatic patients who are on the lower end of the risk spectrum, the CT angiogram adds actually very little on top of the calcium score. It's great tests for symptomatic patients, higher risk patients, but it's been hard to show the CTAA really improves over the calcium score in patients at the lower end of the risk spectrum in terms of when you're not looking for stenosis, you just want to know plaque burden. The calcium score does a majority of the work. So that's why the guidelines focus in on the calcium score. It's cheap, reproducible, low radiation test. Doesn't need special equipment or technologists. Can be done anywhere. That's why it's the preferred test right now. Thanks. I'd like to next discuss two patients that I saw recently that are quite similar except for one key difference. So the first was Mr. Roger Ihop. He's a 60-year-old gentleman with diabetes, hypertension, blood pressure was 140 over 80 at the clinic visit on lisinopril. He's a current smoker with a 30-pack year smoking history. He has no family history of coronary disease, total cholesterol of 155, HDL of 55, and is not on a statin. He underwent a coronary CT recently with a calcium score of zero. His estimated 10-year risk of CVD by MESA CHD risk score is 4.8% when you include the calcium score and 14.6% when you don't include the calcium score. The second patient I saw was Mr. Duncan Donati. He's a 60-year-old gentleman without diabetes or hypertension. He does not currently smoke or have a family history of coronary disease. In the office that day, his blood pressure was 130 over 70, total cholesterol 165, HDL of 60. He too had a coronary CT the same day as Mr. IHOP, coincidentally, but his calcium score was 260. Mr. Donati's 10-year risk of CVD by MESA is higher at 7.6% when you include the calcium score, but actually comes out lower than Mr. IHOP's when you don't include the calcium score at 3.7%. Dr. Blaha, how does inclusion of calcium scores change risk prediction? Great. So these are some great cases. And I guess I'll summarize by saying first case, lots of risk factors, no calcium. Second case, not as many risk factors, but high calcium. And this describes like a daily day for me reading CT scans when I cover the CT service, which is usually Fridays at Hopkins, because you can sit there and predict all you want what the calcium score is going to be ahead of time, and you don't know until you do the study. And we're surprised all the time. Certainly people with more risk factors have higher calcium, but you see all the time people who you're sure are going to have high calcium scores and don't have anything, and people who 
I guess, by epidemiology studies, which you'd say shouldn't have calcium, but do have high calcium score. So this is common. We did a study one time saying, can patients predict by their perceived health status, sort of predict what their calcium score was uh, and, and say, you know, well, my perceived health is excellent. My perceived health is poor, cardiovascular health. How well does that correlate to the calcium score that you actually get? And it doesn't correlate that well. So if you kind of hold the audience and ask patients what your calcium score is going to be, patients and, and by the extension, physicians can't predict all that well what the calcium score is going to be. Now, in composite over thousands of patients, maybe there's a strong correlation, but on any individual patient, it is very hard to know what the calcium score is going to be. So it's not surprising to have a patient with risk factors and a low calcium score and a patient without as many risk factors and a high calcium score. It happens all the time. And you can see patients with multiple risk factors come out as lower risk than patients with less risk factors but a high calcium score. Because that patient with a high calcium score has a high burden of disease. If you were to look at a cath or an imaging study, CT angiogram, those patients probably have a variety of early plaques or maybe moderate advanced plaques in their coronaries. And that patient with a score of zero might well have clean coronaries. The cath with perfect arteries or the CTA without identifiable non-calcified plaque, they're fundamentally different phenotypes expressing atherosclerosis quite differently. Yeah, so calcium scores clearly can change risk prediction based on burden of disease and sometimes can change a lot of the way we think about a patient. Now, that first patient you mentioned is a smoker. So, you know, we're going to get that patient to probably quit smoking regardless of the calcium score. The calcium score doesn't really factor in too much for me for considering the smoking. That's the biggest thing with that patient. And now if we get that patient to quit smoking, then that patient doesn't have a family history, doesn't have high cholesterol. I guess there's a blood pressure that sort of needs to be managed. But as far as the calcium score of zero would bring that patient's risk down to the point where I could definitely focus on lower aggressive interventions, focus on lifestyle in that patient. Whereas the second patient, we would have probably said, you know, your risk factors are great, you're fine, until we get the calcium score and shows that it's high. And I'm very likely to try to lower that patient's cholesterol with the statin, put that patient on an aspirin. We'll kind of come back and talk about that later, how aspirin seems to have a net benefit when patient scores are above 100. You mentioned the MESA risk score. You read out those risk scores. You can go online and calculate it for these patients and see just what you said. But we've reclassified their risk here. We've changed their treatment paradigm based on their burden of disease. And I think that's the future of prevention is to actually make decisions based on burden of disease rather than kind of what you think their burden of disease must be because of their risk factor burden. So this is interesting. Tricky, though, when you have a patient with a calcium score of zero who might be a multiple risk factor, because you're still going to want to focus on those, those risk factors. But clearly, it's a different risk status than if that score was high in your example. So my biggest interest in my clinic and my research would be the second patient, the patient with a high calcium score, and we don't know why. Right? The cholesterol is not that bad. The blood pressure is sort of average for the age. doesn't really have a strong family history. Why does that person making atherosclerosis so much? And how can we mitigate that? Well, that's very interesting to me. It's also actually very interesting to figure out why patients would have a calcium score of zero despite risk factors. Interesting from a biology point of view, but maybe less so immediately in the clinic. But I love to see patients like the second one in my clinic referred to me who have high calcium scores who don't have a whole lot of other risk factors who I can really make a difference in, hopefully. And, and treating their risk. Dr. Baha, thank you so much for explaining how you would think about those two patients a little bit differently. What threshold calcium score do you start thinking about initiating therapies like aspirin and statin? And would you do any further testing in someone like that who has a high calcium score? Great question. And I'm going to challenge the notion a little bit here of a threshold. Now, I know we all in clinical practice, we want to dichotomize everything, right? What's a high blood pressure? You, you probably read the study that Dr. Seamus Walt and I did recently that shows your risk goes up when your blood pressure goes from 100 to 105 to 110, 115. is a continuum of risk. 
Likewise, the calcium score is a continuum of risk. There's no number except for zero and non-zero that it really separates people out. As you go from zero to one to 10 to 100 to 1,000, your risk goes up. I like to think of people along a continuum of risk, and it's really looking at the natural history of atherosclerosis, right? Everyone starts from birth with a calcium score of zero. Should we measure it? At some point, people convert from zero to non-zero. Hopefully, that's when you're 70 or 80. If you're a hunter and gatherer, it probably is. If you're someone who's not living a particularly healthy lifestyle in a Western society, it might be at age 30 that you convert from zero to non-zero. And then you start to progress, and your calcium score goes up on average about 25% per year. So you start to exponentially accumulate calcium. So when I get a calcium score, I think of where they are in the natural history of atherosclerosis. Are they starting to form early plaque or do they have advanced plaque? And when you think about it that way, it starts to really challenge the notion of even primary and secondary prevention. Because there's some patients who have very high calcium scores who are higher risk than your secondary prevention patients, let's say who've been revascularized and who are stable. And then there's patients who have calcium scores of zero at an older age who are almost like primordial prevention, right? Who are very low risk and you're trying to prevent the earliest manifestations of the disease. So I don't try to dichotomize too much. I try to tell people to think about this as a true burden of disease and where are they on the natural history of atherosclerosis accumulation. But for the purposes of treatment, you do need to think a little bit about thresholds, I guess. And I'm a big fan of, of treating someone in general with a statin when they're a non-zero calcium score, especially at a young age, right? That's where we're looking. They've started to manifest some atherosclerosis. We think that statins modify atherosclerosis and prevent atherosclerosis progression and reduce risk. I think statins really make a lot of sense for people, especially at a younger age, who have measurable atherosclerosis. And we also know from modeling studies, a recent study by our group here in circulation, looking at the bleeding risk of aspirin, the benefit you get of aspirin, showing that the net benefit of aspirin seems to come only when your calcium score is above 100. When your score is below 100, you're more likely to get a bleeding event than prevent a cardiovascular event. So generally speaking, this is what's in the SCCT guidelines. When the score is zero, you're thinking about lifestyle and primordial prevention principles. When you start to manifest atherosclerosis, a great time to start a statin. When your score progresses to above 100, it's reasonable to add an aspirin. You're going to get net benefit there. And when the score goes up further, a lot of emerging research showing that, let's say, when your score is 1,000, for example, you're actually higher risk or as high a risk as most secondary prevention populations. It doesn't make sense to treat those patients more like secondary prevention or even above three or 400. So that's the way I think about things as this continuum. But I guess for where we stand right now in guidelines, zero and non-zero, great ways to think about statin therapy. 100 is a great time to think about statin intensification and then adding an aspirin. Thanks, Dr. Bly. We have another case for you. Olive Gardenia is a 40-year-old female with a history of hypothyroidism and anxiety. Her BMI is 27. Blood pressure is 128 over 60 millimeters of mercury. And total cholesterol is 160, HDL 45, and a calculated LDL is 84. After a recent family reunion with her large Italian family, where she was reminded of her strong family history of coronary artery disease, she insisted on evaluation that included a coronary CT, which revealed a calcium score of zero. She is presenting today for follow-up and wants to discuss the implications of her calcium score and how often she should get tested moving forward. Dr. Blaha, what do you tell patients with a calcium score of zero? I kind of have an idea. How do you counsel patients about coronary artery calcium progression and the utility of repeat testing? Yeah, great question. This is this is great. You might say, well, what a waste of a test. The score was zero. But actually, you learned a lot about this patient, right? You, you ruled out the fact that she has an extremely early manifestation of the disease. Those patients we need to be treating the most aggressively. So that's reassuring. We've also 
allowed us an opportunity to really, really focus on lifestyle in this patient because the score is zero. We don't think there's a, a compelling need to throw a lot of medicines at her right away. There's probably a lot of elements of her lifestyle that could be improved to mitigate the family history. So we've given ourselves the tincture of time to work on lifestyle, which is really important element of the calcium score zero, as well as, of course, we can allay a little bit of her anxiety, at least in the short term, about her risk, that she's unlikely to have a heart attack in the next couple of years. But of course, some would say, well, it's too early to get a calcium score. She could have non-calcified plaque, or maybe she's going to get plaque soon. So of course, we're not done. We need to think about repeat testing her in the future, and we need to think about what time frame. But to address the question that you might have, is it too early to measure a calcium score? And really, you just need to change your frame of reference for the age and the sex of the patient. So we expected a calcium score of zero in this patient. So we were looking for any non-zero score as something that would trigger therapy. And we got the score we were expecting of zero, so we largely didn't make a major change. But that, like I said, it had still had value. We recently published a study showing that even in 20 to 30-year-olds with risk factors, there's a, about a 1 in 10 chance of finding uh, a non-zero calcium score. The median score was 4 in those young patients. And in the CARDIA study between the age of 33 and 46, there's about a 1 in 4 chance of identifying a non-zero calcium score in that age range. So you, you can find early disease in these patients, and you should, in, in the right patients look for it. Now, her score was zero. We reassured her a little bit. We really doubled down on lifestyle. And let's talk about repeat testing. So she would actually be in the lower risk group. We recently published uh, two papers, one in JAK and one in JAK imaging that you should look at as far as the, the so-called warranty period of a calcium score of zero is. That's the years you should wait before it's reasonable to repeat that calcium score in that patient. And she'd be in the lower end of the risk spectrum in a woman. You can look it up in our tables. And she'd probably be worth repeating in about the five to seven year zone. In five to seven years, there'd be about a one in four chance that she'd have, have developed calcium, uh, or one in five. That's a reasonable time to repeat the test. I guess the message there is she does not need it every year, right? It takes a while to develop new calcium and to measure it. So she doesn't need a yearly test. That's not the way this test should be used. If she's an intermediate risk patient, we usually say three to five years repeat the test. But why repeat the test? Well, if you measure it again in five years and she's converted to a score of 10 and she's now 45, I'm still going to treat her very aggressively now that I've seen that manifestation of atherosclerosis. So that's what I tell patients with scores of zero. You have time to work on lifestyle. How do I counsel them? I say, you know, you don't have any measurable atherosclerosis. Now we need to work on the things that mitigate the initiation of atherosclerosis. We can repeat this test every, say, five-year interval, and we can change our plan based on the results. And that's uh, really, it's in the guidelines. I think it's going to be in the next set of guidelines even more clearly based on more evidence-based data about repeating the test that we have. But we've dispelled the notion that exists about a decade ago that you need to do, do this test every year or two. That doesn't have a lot of value to do it that often. So this is a patient in whom, you know, a younger patient, relatively few risk factors. We would have been surprised by a non-zero calcium score. Say we took a patient who was a bit older, there would be a higher expected prevalence of non-zero coronary calcium. I'm curious to know your thoughts about how we should think about one's percentile uh, with relation to the presence or absence of coronary calcium versus the absolute score of coronary calcium. This is a great question. So in our score reports, you always see an absolute score. That's a score in Agatson units. That's the calcium score, what the patient's score was. And you'll see the percentile, and that's the age, sex, and race-adjusted percentile of their score. So for example, someone's score could be 100. And if they're young, that could place them at the 90th percentile for their age, sex, and race, telling them that they're you know ahead of 90% of their peers in terms of their score. 
This helps frame the results. And here's the way I like to think about it. The absolute calcium score gives you a sense of your absolute risk over the next five or 10 years. The percentile score gives you a sense of your relative risk compared to your peers and a sense of your lifetime risk trajectory. So let me give you an example. So if you have a 50-year-old patient who has a score of 400, that patient has a, let's say, a, let's say a 50-year-old patient score of 100. That patient has a moderate, you know, five to 10-year risk of having a heart attack has a much higher risk compared to their age and sex match peers who have on average a score of zero. And their lifetime risk of developing coronary disease is very high. In fact, you could calculate based on our studies, the risk of developing heart attack or cancer as a terminal outcome for that patient would be much more likely to be a heart attack. Now, if you have a patient, let's take the extreme of 80, who has a score of 100, they'd have a similar five to 10 year risk of a heart attack as the 50 year old who has a score of 100. But the relative risk compared to their peers would be much lower because the expected score at 80 would be higher. And their lifetime risk of developing cardiovascular disease, of course, is lower because their percentile being lower. So if you take that extreme on the other end, this is a really important concept for younger patients in whom you selectively use the calcium score. So patients referred to me with a strong family history, maybe they have a high LP little A, and at 35, they got their first calcium score, and the score is 10. That's a very high percentile compared to their age match peers very high relative risk compared to their peers, and a very high lifetime risk, and a strong rationale to start intervening early in that patient. Well, that score of 10 in a 70-year-old patient would be much less worrisome. So you need to know the score and the age of the patient or the percentile of the patient to really put this into perspective. So you can say, what's your short-term risk? What's your relative risk compared to your peers? And what's your lifetime risk trajectory? And this is important to me in prevention because I want to see young patients with non-zero scores and whom have a high lifetime risk of disease where I think I can make the most difference in intervening early. And we're doing more and more studies in these young patients, finding significant non-zero scores in these patients, and it's very, very prognostic. So that's where the readers, the listeners out there, the practitioners need to be thinking about both the absolute score and the relative score. Yeah, that's very helpful. You know, it's kind of like endocrinology. You know, you have the absolute TSH, but you have to compare it to your patient. I find the same thing with the calcium score. Recognizing that having a young age and a lower calcium score has major implications versus somebody who's 90 years old, for whatever reason, they got a calcium score and a low number means a completely different thing for those two different patients. So I was wondering, we mentioned LP little a, you know, LP little a is on the rise. People are talking a lot about it as a risk factor. And, you know, you can have an almost a normal lipid profile, but because of elevated LP little a, you're at higher risk. Is this something that's captured by the calcium score? So, you know, you can have a high LP little a putting you at a higher risk, and then you get a normal calcium score. Does that completely negate the known high LP little a? But that's a good question. I think it largely negates that risk, but maybe not completely. You know, the mechanisms by which LP little a mediate risk is still being worked out. Clearly, part of it's via propagation of atherosclerosis, LPA being a cholesterol carrying lipoprotein. But also, you know, we think that LP little a might have implications for thrombosis, inflammation, things like that. So I think largely, if you look at the studies, patients with calcium scores of zero who have high little LP little a's have very favorable prognosis. I guess the worst scenario would be, of course, you have a high LPLA and a high calcium score. There appears to be some additive risk there. So I think the calcium score is a great test for people with high LPLA. I think if that's their only risk factor, you can somewhat reassure them, of course, their score is zero. And when you find those patients with a high LPLA and a high calcium score, you usually have a family history too. Those are the patients, like I said, we like to see in the clinic. We're going to treat them very aggressively. For now, that just means getting their LDL down really well, looking at the future at LPLA specific lowering therapies that are now in clinical trials for secondary prevention patients. That will be potential therapy in the future for these kind of patients. Probably not going to be treating LP little a 
and the absence of atherosclerosis with expensive therapies. But I can imagine the future in primary prevention, we might be finding patients with high LPLA and advanced subclinical atherosclerosis that we might go ahead and elect to lower their LPLA, even with a more expensive therapy, knowing that we're going to get value in the future by lowering that patient's lifetime risk. Oh, fantastic. Really targeting therapy in an individualized way. So Dr. Blaha, when was the first time you heard about coronary calcium studies and what made you get really into it that you've become kind of a leading expert? That's a good question. So I can tell you that I came to Hopkins in 2006 as an intern, of course, and I knew I wanted to do preventative cardiology. I'd done a lot of work at Vanderbilt in insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. Particularly what was interesting about that to me was the cardiovascular side. I always had an interest in cardiometabolic disease, as you read from my profile. And I was always interested in risk prediction as well. And I remember it was pretty much my intern year doing a lot of reading. And I was into biostatistics and epidemiology, a lot of reading about risk prediction, kind of what the latest in risk prediction was. And I looked at these studies, and I was just blown away by these early studies about how strong of a predictor calcium scoring was. And I really didn't know what it was or how to do it at that point. But I could see from the data that it was blowing away everything else, that at the time, inflammatory biomarkers were very hot, that it clearly was a stronger risk predictor than measuring anything in the serum that you could measure. And it started to occur to me several of the things that we talked about here, how it was really personalizing risk based on the burden of disease. So I, I can honestly say it was the data that drew me to calcium scoring. And then, of course, I learned more about it and, and how to improve it, even based off of those early studies. But it was really an eye-opening experience when I first read these papers. And I said, this just makes so much sense to me that if you measure someone's burden of disease, that it is a strong predictor of events. And that simplistic thought really drove my work from there. Okay, Dr. Blaha. So our approach to a calcium score of zero and a calcium score of greater than 100 is for the most part clear, but I'd really love to round out our discussion with your take on intermediate calcium scores with this sort of rapid fire of four case scenarios. How would your approach to each of these patients be different? The first, Paco Bell, a 40-year-old male with a calcium score of 10. Paco Bell needs a statin. The second, Wendy Thomas, a 40-year-old female with a calcium score of 75. Wendy Thomas, probably a statin and an aspirin. Third, Auntie Ann, a 70-year-old female with a calcium score of 10. Auntie Ann, lifestyle. And last, Colonel Sanders, a 70-year-old gentleman with a calcium score of 75. Colonel Sanders is borderline. That was 70-year-old with a score of 75. That was perfect. I just wanted to ask, we've touched a few times during the, the discussion on involving the patient in decision-making when it comes to particularly prescribing certain medicines for prevention. And with coronary calcium scoring, we have the ability to say there is disease or there is not disease. I've often found it sometimes a little bit difficult to express risk to patients with just a risk score in the absence of having coronary calcium. It's sometimes a little bit difficult for patients to understand, or at least that's what I have found. And so I'm wondering what your personal experience is with patient perception when they do have access to coronary calcium and know their score. And second, if we have any data or literature pointing to changes in risk factor control after both a patient and the physician is made aware of their refined risk score with the addition of coronary calcium. So those are great questions. And I, I'll echo what you said about standard risk scores, right? I always joke around that when I one of my patients comes in with a strong family history. Now, they're thinking they're a time bomb. And you calculate their 10-year risk and you say, yeah, 
it's not so good. You have a 15% chance of having a, a heart attack or stroke in the next 10 years. You know what their reaction is? You tell me there's an 85% chance I'm going to be fine in the next 10 years? This is fabulous. I'm low risk. I was thinking I was going to have a heart attack tomorrow and I'm 85% chance I'll be fine in the next 10 years. So, you know, we all agree that the lot of patients have a hard time thinking about probability the same way we do. We see hundreds of patients. They're just one patient. So it's really hard to communicate risk with a 10-year risk score, clearly. And no doubt the calcium score has big advantages. I encourage everyone in that you know, in the era of electronic medical records to you know, tilt the monitor towards the patient and open up the calcium score and show the patient and say, we did the score because I'm looking for that stuff. And that stuff in your arteries right there is plaque. And that plaque is the same thing that your parents had in your arteries before they had their heart attack. And that is why I'm treating you. Not because it says 7.6% on this app, but because of that stuff in your arteries. That all sounds good, but is there data to support it? Well, there is. Uh, a study by Ron Blankstein's group, it's a meta-analysis from Brigham and Women, looked at all the studies looking at, in this case, calcium scoring and both initiation and adherence to medications in the prevention sphere after calcium scoring, showing that a non-zero calcium score or higher calcium score is associated with more guideline-based prescription and as well as continuation and adherence to therapies after a calcium score. So there is some data to support that. And actually, there's a bunch of good European data on carotid ultrasound earlier, too, that shows that patients actually improve their lifestyle and stick with medicines much better after being shown plaque on a carotid ultrasound. I think it translates across imaging modalities. But there is good data to support that there's a modest increase in adherence to lifestyle and pharmacologic therapy, which you know you have plaque versus just knowing your 10-year risk. There's one randomized control trial called the Eisner study that randomized people to a calcium score versus kind of standard risk advice. This was about a decade ago. And there was a modest improvement in risk factors, not real impressive, but a modest improvement in risk factors in people who got randomized to knowing their calcium score. So there's some mild randomized evidence, but not big studies in that regard, but a lot of face validity to that concept. That if you show someone that that motivates them in a way that a statistical expression of their risk doesn't. Now, we're all working on tools like decision aids and things that might improve risk communication. We think if you put things on a different scale, it improves communication. For example, we're working on a tool where it says, for example, if you're a 50-year-old and you have a score of 100, you actually have the arteries of a 75-year-old. In other words, the risk of a 75, healthy 75-year-old, that gets people's attention in a way that saying your risk went from 6 to 15% doesn't. So we have to improve here. We clearly have to improve what works for saying when you plan your clinical trials and you want to power your study and you need to know that it's 7.2% mean risk for your population. That might work for planning your study, but does not work for communicating to patients. So a big area for improvement there uh, in terms of communicating risk. Yeah, that has definitely been my personal experience. And it's great to have another tool to effectively enhance communication with patients. They seem to be very receptive. Yeah, I find that too. Gabe, thanks for throwing in that question. And this is why we bring on guest interviewers who are just amazing and well-versed in the content. I was going to plug a Gabe Shia study here and tell you a study that I quote all the time in, in my clinic and, and Gabe led this study. And I'll summarize it briefly. So Gabe looked at a big database we have of people who had exercise testing at baseline. And we followed up these 60,000 some patients who had exercise testing at baseline and followed up and saw which patients in the future had a heart attack. Then we looked back at baseline and said, your exercise capacity at baseline, was that predictive of how survivable or how well you survived your heart attack, your 28-day mortality, your 90-day mortality? I think gave you up to the year mortality. Right. And by far the biggest predictor, antecedent, six years antecedent to your heart attack, 
of your ability to survive that heart attack. You know, this is regardless of the type of heart attack. We're just looking at all comers, heart attacks. Was your physical fitness level, Gabe, right six years prior? So I talk about this all the time. So a patient, and where this fits into calcium scoring, is someone might say to me, well, my calcium score is 500 and I'm doomed. You know, my dad had a heart attack. I'm going to have a heart attack. And I quote some of this data. They'll say, you know, they'll say to me, I'm scared to exercise. I, I'm afraid to get on the treadmill. I'm going to drop dead. And I'll say, well, wait a second here. If you're asymptomatic, let's make sure that you're safe. You're truly asymptomatic. Then I want you to do is I want you to get on the treadmill. I want you to increase your physical fitness as much as possible. That is actually the primary treatment for your condition other than the medicines you take. Because I can quote you a study that says, even if you do have a heart attack later in life, like your dad did, your physical fitness level, your overall health status, which is a big determinant of physical fitness, is going to be predictive of kind of your long-term morbidity and mortality if you have an event. So that's a Gabe Shia study. I keep on bringing up over and over, Gabe, it's my opinion, your best study. So yeah, far. thank you for the plug. I appreciate it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, right? So tell what do you think, Gabe? Well, certainly it's a study that I, not to uh, plug my own study to my patients, but I do mention it to them. And I think exercise capacity is often, you know, with limited time in the clinic, we don't often counsel patients or may not have time to counsel patients the way that we want to in that regard. So particularly in patients in cardiology clinic who, as you said, might have hesitation when it comes to pushing themselves with exercise, assuming that it's safe and that they're asymptomatic, etc. It's important to emphasize that exercise capacity is a strong risk factor, both with incident cardiovascular disease and subsequent adverse outcomes. Exactly. So anyway, I just wanted to make that point clear. It really has prevention implications. Thank you guys so much. This was a really amazing discussion. And we want to finish off by asking you, Dr. Blaha, what makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention? Yeah, that's a good question. From a background that I have in public health and epidemiology, I was always fascinated about doing things that have uh, a research or thinking that has greater impact than just one patient, that has an impact on a society or hopefully the, the world. So what makes me interested about prevention is the scope of the impact you might be able to have. If you could get people to quit smoking a little bit better or inform people about the risks of a new risk marker or something, the, the impact you could have would be huge. And I realize that it takes, we all learn in this field, it takes a long time to get something to be translated to clinical practice. Even something as simple as a calcium score or a statin can take a decade to really become where everyone says that's obvious. So it takes a long time. But once it's out there, I think it can have a major impact on virtually everybody, right? Once you're in prevention, other physicians come up to you and, you know, and ask you about their own health status. Your, your family members want to ask you about what do you know about diet and exercise? You really have a skill set that's very valuable to people, not just your patients, but people in general. And I like public health messaging. I think it's important. So that, that's what gets me interested about prevention is the scope of the problem. So with that, I want to thank you, Dr. Blaha and Gabe for joining us today. And we want to welcome you to the Cardio Nerds family. This was a really, really, really amazing discussion. And I learned a lot about calcium scoring and just the different scenarios in which it would be most useful. This is Ahmed Karad. I am president of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology and professor of medicine, director of preventive cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I want to first thank the Cardio Nerds podcast. What an amazing job these folks do and really thankful that they've elected to do this prevention series. 
Prevention is so important and so fundamental to all that we do in cardiovascular medicine. And at the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, we're delighted to co-sponsor this series to really promote what they do, to share with all of you about the wonderful world of prevention and all the great experts that they're going to bring on these podcasts. We hope you get a lot out of this series. And if anybody wants to learn more about prevention, please reach out to myself or any one of these excellent speakers they have coming up. We're all pretty passionate about prevention, and we certainly want to help others learn about it too.